Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are in Galatians chapter 3 at the end of the chapter, verses 23 through 29. It's been a few weeks since we've been here, since I've been here, uh, and uh, in the book of Galatians. So we're back to our study there and finishing up chapter 3. I'd also like to say before I begin the message this morning that I hope that you can be here or listen to the message tonight. Because of the events going on in Israel, I'm going to uh, do a message tonight on Israel in the end times. And that is, what does the Bible say about what will happen to Israel in the end times, both with her and her enemies around her? And so we're just going to go through some biblical passages tonight that explain that. So I hope that you can be with us or listen in tonight. This morning, here we are in Galatians chapter 3. I've titled this, The Schoolmaster and the Son. In the older version, the, uh, the word that we have as tutor in the new version is translated schoolmaster, and that's why I use that, that term. This section of, of Galatians began actually all the way back in chapter 2, verse 16, which I called kind of the proposition of the whole book knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So what we have learned in this second session uh, is that the law has served its purpose. Chapter 3, verse 24 in our passage here begins, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to bring Israel up to that time when Jesus came. And the Mosaic law then is done. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. What purpose then does the law serve? Notice the word added. It was added, in other words, it had a beginning because of transgressions, until, in other words, it had an ending, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And of course, we know from up above in verse 16 that that means until the time of Christ. I've explained, I think maybe a couple times already, that uh, some things that were under the law are reinstituted after the law. For example, nine of the Ten Commandments are still uh, worded in the New Testament as well, but some things are not reinstated and therefore not under grace. For example, the Sabbath, which was part of the law in the Ten Commandments, but it's never reinstated in the New Testament. So uh, though the law is done, uh, we understand what the law was for, and that's what our passage is about. Now, we all, need, we all need law sometime in our lives, right? I mean, there are just times uh, where uh, we need law. Not necessarily the Mosaic law. I'm just saying we need law. Uh, children grow up under parents. And uh, if you've raised children at all or are raising them now, you know that you go through those times when, you, when, you're, when your kids need the law laid down to them, right? When they're very young, uh, infants to you know, preschoolers, uh, you, you're pretty much in total control. You, you control their life when they eat, when they go to bed, when they get up. Uh, 
although uh, those of you who have little ones at home right now, sometimes they determine when you get up, but uh, uh, generally most things in their life you're under control. Then they, they get a little older and you have to kind of mix a little bit of law with a little bit of grace. I mean, you know, they're beginning to learn how to make their own decisions and you give them responsibility. And then there comes a time when basically they leave your home. When they become adults and they go out and have their own life, you become kind of the counselor, advisor type of person, but you don't always have direct control over them. Uh, the law still gives us counsel. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for these kinds of things, uh, but we don't live under it anymore. So Paul will, will kind of liken what happened to Israel under the law to the way we grow up and the way we are one time controlled by those things and another time those things are gone. School children need that in school, right? You start out in kindergarten, first grade, and you need some pretty uh, heavy hands on you, but by the time you're in 12th grade, you're supposed to be ready <laughs> to go out on your own and, and, and live on your own, or we all live under governments, and we need law at, in certain ways in our life, and uh, otherwise we don't need that. The law is not made for a righteous man. Do you remember in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, it says this, Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and disobedient. In other words, if you keep the law, if, you, if you're a good person who, who likes to live in a law-abiding way, you're never bothered by the law. The policeman doesn't arrest you. You don't get pulled over uh, for everything. Uh, you, you pay your taxes and you do all of those things you're supposed to do, the law doesn't bother you. It's not made for a righteous person, but for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, he goes on. Uh, for fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. So live, live uh, right and you don't need the law. That was true in the Old Testament too. Uh, a man uh, could live right and enjoy uh, even what the law was teaching. Now, before we start, I should say, too, there, there are some contrasting views these days among Christian people about why, why we have the Old Testament and why, you know, uh, we still uh, go there for teaching and so forth. There are some that believe that the Mosaic Law ought to be used by all countries as their national law. It's called dominion theology. Rather than a constitution like we have in the United States, we ought to just readopt the Old Testament Mosaic law as, our, as the government of our country, and if we would, God would bless us. And there are some people who, who feel that. There are, there are others who believe that at least for Christians, the law is still the law, and we ought to keep all of the law except what is uh, redone in the New Testament. It's called theonomy. And there are some then that believe that the Old Testament has no value at all. We don't even need to read it or, or anything. And by the way, Andy Stanley has, uh, has uh, uh, supported that view. You don't even need the Old Testament. Now that it's gone, you don't even need to be reading it. And then there are some that believe kind of, well, the law is good for Jews and the, New Test you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament is good for Christians. So when we mistakenly use the expression Judeo-Christian, which is good for our government, it doesn't mean 
that the Jews practicing the law are going to heaven like the Christians practicing Christianity. No, there's only one Savior and one way to God through him. So what's Paul's view about this? That's the way we come to today. What is his view? That's what we have in verses 23 through 29, and we're going to look at these verses a little bit. So go with me there, and notice my outline you have in the bulletin or on the screen. So first of all, uh, notice number one is we're kept under the law, and number two is we're set free under grace. So we kind of want to contrast these two things as Paul does. In the first two verses, 23 and 24, let me read them again. Kept under the law. He says, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, or you might have schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be finally justified by faith. So notice my thoughts here. Verse 23 says, basically, we're guarded and in prison under the law. We have that uh, in a couple specific words here. But notice that he says, before faith came. Again, I had emphasized a minute ago, the law had a beginning place, didn't it? We read that uh, in verse 19. The law had a starting point. So what is he saying? Even before... Uh, the law, there was uh, faith, and before faith, there was the law. There is a beginning and an ending place for the law. Just two thoughts here. What he's going to say is that the law served a purpose, and that was conviction of sin. If nothing else, the law would convict you that you, you're not a law keeper. You can't keep it. And the other thing that he's going to say to us is that no one was saved by keeping the law. He has said that since chapter 2, verse 16. You didn't become a believer, you didn't become a, a Christian or a, a child of God by keeping the law. It always had to be by faith. So before faith came, when now, nowadays, of course, we're saved by faith. Not by the law. We don't even keep the law in the New Testament, except, again, what the New Testament restates. And so uh, faith is here now, but it wasn't always here. Up until the time faith came, notice we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterwards come or be revealed. Now, it's interesting. I say guarded in prison. The word kept the first time it's used there in the verse, we were kept under the law, is the word for a guard in the sense of a sentry. You know, somebody that stands guard over the prison. Uh, we, the law guarded us. The law made sure we stayed in our place. The law made sure we stayed within a certain parameter. It was our sentry that kept us. Now, interesting, uh, prisoners... Uh, are protected and both punished, you know, under the law. You're protected in a way that uh, you have to do certain things. You have to stay right here. And, of course, society is protected from you, too. But, uh, but the law is a confinement, too. It keeps you in a certain place. So we had a guard over us. The law is like that guy with the, the, the rifle over his shoulder, and he's marching back and forth, making sure you stay in place. You can see that in the law, can't you? 
But notice also then uh, that uh, we are kept under guard by the law. You see the word guard means kept confined, kept in prison, literally, under the law. So we have a guard and we have a prison. Look at verse 22, just the previous verse. And remember back when we were there, it said, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Exactly the same word that we have in verse 23. It confines us. It, it puts us in parameters. So under the law, here's the law. Here's what it says. Here's, here's Exodus. Here's Leviticus. Here's Numbers. Here's Deuteronomy. Here are all the verses. Here are all the things that you have to do. You better do them, and you better keep them. So we were confined, so to speak, under the law. Shut up, uh, you might have in, in one version. Specific limits put upon us. Now, again, verse 23, all of that happened, what? For the faith which would afterward be revealed. So something is coming afterward. And by the way, the law was before grace. The law is not afterward. There's a time when the law ended. I'll say that again uh, a number of times. But let me, let me say it clearly here. We have learned already in the book of Galatians that the law had a beginning and an ending. We're not under the Mosaic law today. And so it started and it stopped. And some things that only were existed under the law started and stopped. This, the, the sacrificial system, the feast days, the Sabbath day, various different things like that started with the law and ended with the law. Why? So that we could know faith, so that we could come to understand and appreciate what being saved by faith is. And that's his point here. So we move on. I have here guarded in prison and tutored by the law. Now, Paul kind of switches analogies. On the one hand, he said, now, the, the law was like our prison yard, and, and it kept guard over us. Well, let, me, let me switch and talk about a tutor, or you might have the word again, uh, schoolmaster. Pedagogos is the way you would say this word, tutor. Now, schoolmaster's okay, but it gives us it, I think, kind of falls short of the whole picture of what's happening here. Because I think of a schoolmaster as that guy I sat at one time that had a ruler in his hand and would hit us on the knuckles, you know, uh, and wore those uh, reading glasses. You know, that, that was a schoolmaster to me. And I was glad to go home after school. <laughs> but a tutor is perhaps a better word. Now, pedagogos, you have in there... In that first part of that word, paideia, which means a child, and gogos, which means a leader, a child leader. So paideia, we say pediatrics today, is for children. So paedagogos is a child leader. He's, a, he's someone who takes care of the dependent and someone uh, who takes care of a child who is learning. You know, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul will say, you've had 10,000 instructors in Christ, but only one father in the faith, right? Remember that? 10,000 pedagogos, 10,000 tutors. <laughs> Think of all the tutors you've had in life. 
Think of all the people who sat in a class over you, or you sat under them, or you learned from them, or, you, you know, in all of your life. We've had 10,000 of them, I think, you know. Well, you have this leader, this schoolmaster, or this tutor, if you will, excuse me, and a, and a tutor in those days, you, you might say, was for a family that was able to hire this tutor to tutor the children all the way to adulthood, which was somewhere around the same age that we use. Uh, some say it was 17, some 18 years old. Uh, not, not just bar mitzvah, but beyond that. So this child had to grow up with this person, and that person went wherever the child went. And uh, day and night, told the child how to have manners, told him how to sit at a table properly and eat food, told him how to, how to work, told him, you know, studied the, the numbers and everything with this child. So you kind of have to think of somebody who just tutored this child 24-7 all of his life. That's what the law did, of course. The law never let you go. The law was with you day and night all of your life and was with Israel until they came to the time when they would be set free from that and become an adult. And there was a time, of course, when a, when a Jewish child then was on his or her own and didn't have to be under this tutor anymore. So tutor, by the way, the word uh, chastisement in Hebrews 12 uh, is the same word, pedagogos, chastisement. So think of this tutor as someone who would, who would instruct or inflict, depending on what you needed at the particular time. But in verse 24 again, therefore the law was our pedagogos, our tutor, to bring us to maturity, which in this case is to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Because the law can't justify, the law can't save, but Christ can save. And Though you would live under the law and though the law would instruct you in all the details of life, that in itself doesn't save you just by obeying law. Faith is what has to save you. And so finally, when the law drops away and you become independent, you see Christ as the way to be saved, and that's who you go to. Justified, your, your account is set right, and your account finally is settled with God. So, two analogies here, guarded in prison and brought up by a tutor. But notice the third point I have here under number one from verse 25, and that is there comes a time when you're released as an adult. So, verse 25 says, but after faith has come. In other words, again, uh, there's a time before and a time after. Faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor, no longer under this child uh, uh, instructor. You become an adult. You know, we call it in school graduation, right? Or what's the other word for graduation? Commencement, right? Which doesn't mean the ending. It means the beginning. And so graduation might say, well, okay, I'm done with, I'm done with my school, but commencement really means now I commence to go the rest of my life. I start the rest of my life. And so that's what's happening here. Israel came to commencement when the law was done, and now grace begins. And now they're under Christ uh, at this point. So released from the law, 
verse 25 will say, no longer under a tutor. The Mosaic law is over. Mosaic law is done. We need to understand that today. Look at it this way, folks. The law of Moses began and ended, right? So when did it begin about date on the calendar? We'd put it about 1400 B.C. That's about the time they came to Mount Sinai. So from 1400 B.C. up until Christ, when Christ died, 32 A.D. So for 1400 years, let's say, that was the fifth dispensation, if you will. And we can use that word. It's a biblical word, dispensation. Well, it's one of five dispensations in the Old Testament. So there were four before that one. And the first one was even in the Garden of Eden of innocence. And then after that, uh, the period of conscience. And then after that, the, uh, of human government. And after that, promise. And then after that, the law. And each time God gave a, a, a instruction, let's say, under each dispensation, here's what you're supposed to do. And what he was doing is bringing people on a, on a progressive plane up to the time when the Messiah would come. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, he, he said to Adam and Eve after the, the sin, you know, uh, and to the woman that uh, you will have a seed who will be, of course, Messiah. And so from that time up to Christ, he goes through all these different things. Now, a sub point here is, Back in Genesis 1, this is called dominion. A mandate was given to Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. And what God did in all of these dispensations is he modified that dominion mandate for the people who lived in that age. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now, here's what you're supposed to do. And here's what you're supposed to do. And you get to Moses in 1400 B.C. and he says, now, here's what you're supposed to do. And so it had a starting point, it had an ending point, and now he says to us under grace, by the way, here's what you're supposed to do. And first of all, we're supposed to see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact, and we're supposed to put our faith in what Jesus did for us. And now he says, you have a commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and I want you to do that till Jesus comes. And adds to that our responsibilities to one another through local churches and all the things that belong to the churches. And so all of us have had our stewardships before God. They had their stewardship before God. And when Christ came, we're no longer under that one. We're no longer under that stewardship or that pedagogos, that tutor or schoolmaster. When I traveled to, uh, to Russia and Ukraine, way back with my father-in-law and brother-in-law, uh, back to 1990 was the first time, I saw something in their churches that I thought was really interesting. I had to ask about it. And we'd be sitting in a large auditorium, and usually in those days the auditorium was just packed with people because they hadn't been able to go to church, at least freely up to that time. And so here you are in a large auditorium. Well, right, right in the middle of the auditorium, this man sat there with a whole bunch of little kids around him. Every service, he's sitting there, and all these little kids are sitting around him. And I, I had to ask, what's going on there? Matter of fact, I just texted Sam yesterday. 
I know this, they had a name for this guy. I forget what it is. He must be somewhere. I don't know where Sam is, but he, he didn't answer me yet. So let's just call him Sergeant. <laughs> That's about what it seemed like. Here's this guy who's like a sergeant type of guy, and he's sitting in the middle of the auditorium. And every child in church had to go sit by him and learn how to behave in church. And that child had to sit by him in every service they went to until the child proved that he could sit on his own. There were some people there, 60, 70 years old. No, no, I'm not kidding you. Although I think sometimes we should have a sergeant for adults in church, right? You know, all right, straighten up, stay awake, quit thinking about lunch, you know, and all of that kind of thing. But they did. They had, they had this sergeant type of guy until the child said, I can handle it on my own. Look, I can behave. And I, I think probably if the child got away from him and started misbehaving, guess what? <laughs> back to prison you go. You go back and sit with this guy in church. I thought it was a great arrangement. I mean, it was their version of children's church, basically. <laughs> you know, this is where you're going to go as a child until you can do it on your own. Well, that's what Paul is saying really about the law. You go sit with the law and sit under the law until you can behave on your own. And if you can behave on your own, you're free from all of that law. And then you accept Christ as your Savior, as an adult, as someone who, who doesn't need the law anymore, someone who internally has been made new in Christ, and now you can live like that. So, kept under the law is the first part. Secondly, we're set free under grace. So let me read these few verses from 26 to 28 here again. For, you should know these things, in other words, he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, or excuse me, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. It begins with that little word for, I think, for this reason. He's saying, remember, he's writing to believers in Galatia. He's writing, he's writing to Christians. And so he has to stop and say, you should know this. You should know that we're not under the law. You weren't saved under the law. You're saved by faith in Christ. For all of that happened for this reason. As he brings them back, you are all sons of God through faith. So notice my three thoughts. First of all, you're saved by faith in verse 26. You all are this way. All of you up here in Galatia, I've preached to you. I've brought you the gospel. You are all saved. Some of you are Jews. Some of you are Gentiles. That had created, of course, a big problem, part of the reason for this book of Galatians. But uh, he's going to say, of course, in verse, uh, in verse uh, 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. So he's speaking to all these believers that are there. And then he says something very significant. You are all sons of God. Now, that word sons is a unique word also. Remember back up when I, we talked about the tutor and I, de I defined the word Pedagogos, I said paideia means a dependent one. There are a number of words in the Greek language that speak of children. Uh, technos, 
paideia, pice, even things like that, always speak of children at some point of development in their life. But when the Bible says weos, sounds like a funny word to us, but weos is the word for son, which always means an adult son. As a matter of fact, every time Jesus is called the son of God, it's this word. It's weos, never in one of those diminutive type words. And so he turns around and says, guess what? When you're old enough not to sit under the law anymore, you are a weos of God. You are an adult child. You are a son of God, if you will. A daughter of God is okay for females. We understand this applies to both. So notice some verses with me. First of all, chapter 4, again, as we skip ahead, I should say, and verse 5 through 7, that he came to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Weos, or weoi it would be. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, same word in both places, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see the exalted place of being paideia under the law and being weos, that is, sons of God, joint heirs, adopted children, with all of those privileges that come with being an adult son. You remember, if you, if you go to your right a little ways, there's an interesting expression about this in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, I mean. When he's talking about growing up, he says that we should no longer be children. He uses the word paideia there. No longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. Let me remind you of two words. Verse 14, we're not children. Verse 15, we're grown-ups, right? You were children, grow up. And he's speaking to believers in the book of Ephesians. And so we should live like we should be grown-up people in Christ. What does that mean? We, we don't need a mosaic law over us. You have the Spirit of God we're going to see in just a minute. You have the things of God in you. You ought to be able to live like a Christian, like an adult Christian. And that's what he's saying to us, sons of God. And then he says at the end of verse, we're back now in Galatians 3, at the end of verse 26, that, we, that is because of faith in Christ, through faith in Christ. Somebody commented, I thought this was correct. You know, the Judaizers, the Judaizers, remember them? They were the ones who were teaching in those days, you've got to keep the law to be saved. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. Remember all of this? When we went back to Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, to show that that caused this whole problem that came about. And Paul's writing the book of Galatians to combat that problem. But the point is this. 
They're doing something even God didn't try to do. They're trying to save people by the law. God never did that. God never gave the law so that people can be saved. He never said, do all of these things to have eternal life. People were saved by faith before the law, in the law, and after the law. And here these Judaizers were trying to do things that even God never tried to do. So Paul emphasizes here one more time, through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you became a son of God. It had to be through faith. We know Abraham, before the law was ever given, was saved by faith. We'll see that here in a minute. And uh, if you want to talk about David, if you want to talk about Isaiah, you want to talk about Elijah, and all of the people who are obviously believers, Hebrews chapter 11, they were, they were saved by faith, right? Isn't that what Hebrews chapter 11 is? By faith, these people did these things. So Paul emphasizes this again. So we're saved by faith is one way that we're free, okay? Free from the law. You're not saved that way. By the way, people add all kinds of laws to faith today. Those who believe in baptismal regeneration have added that good work to faith in order to be saved. Maybe some especially cults say, you have to be a member with us in order to have eternal life. You have to be part of our organization to have eternal life. There's all kinds of, of things added to faith even today, laws added to faith. But secondly, we are baptized by the Spirit. Now, verse 27 is a short way of saying, for as many of you, you Galatians, Jews and Gentiles, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, again, uh, the, our Christian church friends might uh, look at this a totally different way than we do. If you don't have a cross-reference in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you ought to, because I'll go there and I'll read that to you. This verse is not talking about water baptism, at least not with that word baptized. It's talking about what we call spirit baptism. When and how did that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says it this way. As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being member are one body, so also is Christ, verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink into one spirit. Spirit baptism happened to you the moment you got saved. I, I've said that so many times, <laughs> I think to you too, I'm, I hope it's old and old news. Uh, you were baptized into Christ the moment you got saved. The Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit regenerated you. The Holy Spirit placed you into the body of Christ. That began, by the way, in, at the day of Pentecost when 120 were uh, initially placed into the body of Christ, the church, that is. And so the moment you got saved, you were placed in there by the Holy Spirit. What's Paul trying to say here? That didn't happen because of the law. That happened because of your faith in Christ. When you have faith in Christ, that Holy Spirit placed you into the body. Jew or Gentile, male or female, whatever your status is, the same thing happened to you, happened to everybody. And so we're brought together even, you might say, by this. And at the end of this, he says, 
you, are, you have put on Christ. Now notice that expression. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The word put on means is the word enduo. You are endued with Christ. You, you put on Christ like you would put on a suit of clothes. And what is he saying? Grow up, dress up like an adult. Put on the one person who is the adult, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You began then to put on the life of Christ. Even under the law, they, they didn't know how to do that. I think it could include water baptism at the end of this verse because the first way that you put on Christ is to follow him in water baptism. Buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection, that begins your life of sanctification. And from that point on in your Christian life, you've been putting on Christ. Every time you learn something more, something different, every time you see something in Christ that needs to be in you, you've been putting on Christ all of your life. Old things are passed away, and all things are becoming new. So, saved by faith, baptized by the Spirit, and then thirdly, I have unified by brotherhood. So, now in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither Notice the emphasis each time. Slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The first division is a racial division. A Jew or a Greek. A Jew or a Gentile. An American or a Russian. A Chinese or a Japanese. You know, th these, are, these are racial differences. But what is he talking about? That when you get saved, you're no longer... Uh, Jew, no, you retain all of your racial backgrounds, but in Christ Jesus, you're the same as everybody else. You're a brother or a sister in Christ, right? It doesn't make any difference what race you are when you come to Christ. Secondly, there's a social difference among believers, bond or free. Now, in those days, they, of course, had slavery. It was all over the Roman Empire and, and the rest of the world as well. And, and unfortunately, that's been a social division, you know, for thousands of years. But you could put in there rich or poor. You could put in there king or servant. You could put in there a shepherd or a fisherman. I mean, you, you know, you, your social status, what you do. But when you got saved, you're a brother or sister. And in those churches back then, they had men that out there in their world of occupation, one was a master and the other a slave, but they came and sat next to each other in church and sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not really, that didn't happen till later, but I mean, they, they sang together, they prayed together, they, they worshiped together, because there's no difference in, when you're in Christ. Well, what about that expression, male or female? Well, I hope that you can draw the same thing there, right? Uh, we need to understand that for a couple different reasons. Number one, for some reason, our crazy generation can't figure out what is male and female. But again, it's not that in Christ you lose your gender any more than you lose your racial orientation or even your social status. You don't actually lose gender Ladies, you're still sisters in Christ, and men, you're still brothers in Christ. But you're still men or women, right? So learn that today. The other thing that sometimes this verse is wrongly used for is 
to do away with the role distinctions that God has for men and women, whether in the home as the husband is the head of the home and the wife as, as submissive to the husband, or in the church where men are to take leadership in the church, and sometimes they use this verse to do away with those role distinctions. That's not valid from this verse either. All that this verse is saying is, in Christ Jesus, we're all the same. Peter had to learn this lesson in a very unique and maybe difficult way. Remember Acts chapter 10? And uh, God needs to send uh, that Gentile uh, to, to Peter to be saved. But he's got to do a little work on Peter first because Peter hasn't gotten these distinctions down right. So Peter's up on his rooftop and this sheet comes down from heaven. And it's got all kinds of animals in it, clean and unclean according to the law. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And there's two times in the Bible, Peter says, not so, Lord. And you got to be careful with those words. <laughs> if God says something, you say, not so, Lord. But he said, I've never eaten anything unclean. How can you command me to do this? And what was God's answer? What I have cleansed, don't you call unclean. Three times God had to let that down and go back up. You know what Peter was seeing? He was seeing a picture of the local church of Jesus Christ. It's going to have Jews and Gentiles in it. It's going to have all kinds of people in it. And I'm going to send you over there to Caesarea, and you're going to preach to them, and you're going to see them saved, and you're going to see the Spirit come down upon every one of them. He's going to baptize everyone and every kind of person that comes to Christ. Peter had to learn that uh, the hard way, but he did. And later he will say when the Jews at Jerusalem say, well, Peter, what happened up there? He's going to say, how, could I withstand God who does this? If God did it, what, what am I? Who am I to, to withstand God? All right, let me go to one last point, and I'll do it quickly. As I, I say verse 29 just to the very end, if you are Christ then, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, I'm just going to take four related thoughts out of this verse and give them to you kind of as a conclusion to what we've been saying. First of all, there, there was a promise to Abraham. And that promise to Abraham, we have seen in this book, if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that uh, only those who are of faith are, there's our word, we us, sons of Abraham. And the scripture for seeing that that they would justify the nations by faith. And so there is a promise to Abraham given in 2000 B.C. When did the law begin? 1400 B.C. 600 or more years before Moses was, ever came about, God had promised Abraham people would be saved by faith long before the law. And as a matter of fact, the definition of faith then is given in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. How do you gain righteousness with God? By the law? No, by believing, by having faith. And so he's pointing that out. And also you have here the faith was in effect then before the law. Faith is in effect during the law. Faith is in effect after the law. As a matter of fact, God preached the gospel, Paul says, to Abraham, which is to be saved by faith. 
Secondly, Christ was Abraham's seed. He's, he's alluding back to that, which he explained in chapter 3. Christ is Abraham's seed in different ways. Physically, he is. Matter of fact, physically, Christ is Eve's seed. Aren't we all? We all come out of Adam and Eve. He was Abraham's seed physically. He was a Jew. And he was David's seed physically. He was a Jew and he was to be king of the Jews. And so physically, yes, he's the seed of Abraham. Prophetically, he's the seed of Abraham. He's the king of a kingdom that was promised through Abraham, David, and all the rest. But more than anything, he's spiritually the son of Abraham because Jesus is the epitome. He's the picture of faith. And when we come to, to God, we don't come through faith in Abraham. We come through faith in Jesus Christ. And so spiritually, we are like that. Thirdly, believers are sons of Abraham, it says here. Seed of Abraham, if you will. We are also the seed of Abraham. Now, all believers are united by faith. We've seen that in the previous verse uh, and the rest. So before the law, that's how people came to God. During the law, afterwards, we come by faith. When you get saved, Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free, you are in Christ. And remember that that does not replace Israel. This will be part of my message tonight. But Israel is still Israel. The Jews are still the Jews. God is still going to bless that nation. God still promises to bless those who bless that nation and curse those who curse that nation. But there is Israel and there is the church. And when you get saved today, that Holy Spirit places you into the church, the body of Christ. And we are spiritual sons. Listen to Romans 4.11 just briefly. Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, speaking of Abraham, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Abraham, then, is the father of all believe. How is that? Not that you become a Jew when you get saved, but you become part of the, can we say, family of God? You become, you become part of children of God, sons of God, by faith, the same as Abraham did. And one more thing I'll say is we are heirs. Isn't it a great thing that we are heirs? This, this uh, verse says right at the end that, that uh, we are heirs according to that promise. And I could read you, uh, or you might have a reference to Romans 8, 16 and 17, which says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Briefly, what that means is the, the oldest child in a family, the oldest son, I should say, in a family, got a double portion of the inheritance, a double portion. Every, all the other children got a portion, but the oldest son got the double portion. And he did that because he had to turn around and take care of the rest of the family when, when father was gone. And so to be a joint heir means you and I have the same heirship or, or inheritance that Jesus has. We are joint heirs with the older son. And so his kingdom will be our kingdom. His salvation is our salvation. His future is our future. We will live with him and reign with him, not only a thousand years, but into eternity. 
And so not just heirs, we're joint heirs even with the oldest son, a great thing. Let me just close by saying this, folks. Salvation is two things. Salvation is repentance and faith. Repentance alone doesn't save you. You can be sorry for your sins. You can know that you're a sinner, but to have no solution to it doesn't save. The law brought you repentance. The law brings you uh, that knowledge of your sin. You can read the Old Testament and come away saying, I'm as big a sinner as anybody ever was. But that doesn't save you. But if it brings you to Christ, if you look for the answer and say, how can I be forgiven of this sin? And you find Jesus Christ is the one that all you have to do is place your faith and trust in him. That's a great thing. So repentance is necessary, but it's faith in Christ that gives you eternal life. And if you are in this age of grace, Jesus died for you. He was buried. He rose again the third day for you. He stands ready to receive you if you will receive him. I hope you have, and I hope that you will. Stand with me now if you, as we think about these things and go to the Lord in prayer. We always sing a song of invitation and allow the Holy Spirit to move on our hearts as he wants. Let's pray together. Father, now thank you for this great passage. Thank you again for this great book of Galatians that makes these kinds of things so clear to us. And so, Father, we pray that now as we stand clearly in this new age of grace and we preach the gospel of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, as this message has gone out from this pulpit and from every place where the gospel is preached today, may people be saved today. If someone's listening to my voice and doesn't know Christ as Savior, may they not leave this room this morning or where they are without coming to Jesus Christ and asking him to be their savior, forgiveness of their sin. So Father, I pray you would do that among us and give us the confidence in what we know and what we believe and what we preach. And may we be unashamed uh, to speak those words. So now bless as we sing, work in our hearts as you will. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Gordon's gonna come and lead us in this song.